Chloe Humbert, and I'm not waiting for everybody. And you don't have to either. Accusation in a mirror. This is a disinformation tactic that is related to tone policing and woke washing. Also related to the concept of DARVO, and all of these things seem to be deployed against public health and, well, really the reasonable workings of a civilization. Uh, these tactics get used to muddy the understanding of what's going on and cause confusion. Tone policing is described on the blog of the American Philosophical Organization as shifting the focus from the content of the conversation to the tone or manner. They say, quote, Policing announces that the shift cannot be reversed until tone is addressed. They insist that the conversation cannot continue until the speaker adjusts it. It often involves a further demand, implicit or explicit, that the interlocutor address their infraction with some apology or other gesture of accountability before things can proceed, unquote. How this sometimes plays out is that someone in a position of leadership or importance specifically calls for everyone in a particular group or milieu to be accepting and non-judgmental toward offenders of some type within the group in order to quell criticism, basically. And those with serious concerns are dismissed because they didn't express their pain politely enough, which means not only are the offenders not required to make any changes, the aggrieved are actually expected to be the ones to fall in line and go along to get along. This is a form of groupthink, and usually people say straight up they're trying to stop division. But uh, unless you're some ex-CIA agent from the 1980s, you know, that diversity isn't the cause of victimization. It's not the cause. Most reasonable people recognize the need to hold people accountable, for example. Tone policing is a version of the disinformation tactic known as DARVO, D-A-R-V-O, and it stands for Deny, Attack, and Reverse Victim Offender. The end result of this tactic is to silence the victim and delegitimize them in the eyes of allies or onlookers. In a MedPage Today op-ed titled, Who's Really the Victim Here?, from 2022, they report, quote, In one study, researchers found that targets of DARVO were more likely to blame themselves. Self-blame is associated with self-silencing. In another study, researchers found that observers of DARVO tended to doubt the credibility of the true victim, believing the perpetrator instead, unquote. This confusion is brought on by characterizing protest by a victim as being the problem, as if objecting to an attack is also supposedly an attack. And one metaphor I think of is that it winds up being like as if somebody gets slapped and the slap person yells out, ouch. The slap person who yells ouch is then accused of raising their voice and yelling. And then that person gets scolded for being bullying or aggressive when obviously they were the person who was slapped. It doesn't help that actual psychologists have termed traumatic reactions to abuse as quote reactive abuse even while according to abuse experts this label is harmful and dangerous because it ignores the power imbalance. In an article from September 2022 in Insider 
A retired licensed professional counselor with 50 years of experience says, quote, there is nothing mutual about power and control. We call these responses self-defending when a victim stands up to their abuser and says no more. Anytime you use the word abuse with them, you're actually giving the abuser leverage to work against the victim, unquote. None of these bad faith, twisted rationalizations make any sense if you think things through. But clever people prey upon the fact that most people don't want to think things through. Nobody has time for that. And we all can be distracted with any number of diversions. Once the confusion is inserted, then you're subject to what's called the bullshit asymmetry principle, or Brandolini's law, which asserts, quote, the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than to produce it, unquote. Then we come to woke washing. There are many forms of washing. I even found a new one last week on the Fire These Times podcast called Samood Washing. There's pink washing, green washing, but all of these fall under the umbrella of what's called woke washing, basically, which is promoting something harmful as doing something pro-social. It might be also cloaking the harm behind a patina of do-gooding, but there's often more to it than just deceptive advertising or signaling. Woke washing is a divisive tactic to target the victim or make their claims seem unimportant or out of line. And this is using the reverse victim offender. An example is someone claiming that net zero targets for climate change are a human rights attack on the global south by withholding their chance to use more fossil fuels and contribute more to the global pollution, I guess. Which is completely ignoring the fact that the global south is already suffering under actual climate change that's already happening. So it just doesn't make sense. The Citations Needed podcast had a recent episode titled How Capital Repackages Substandard Products for the Poor. On this podcast episode, they never mention the terms wokewashing or darvo, but that's the underlying thing that the topic hinges upon. They're exposing the horrendous justifications and false choices pushed to make it expensive to be poor. The podcast quotes from a Nicholas Kristoff article from September of 2000 called Two Cheers for Sweatshops. Ugh. And in this article, there's a story of a Cambodian woman who loses both her daughter and son-in-law to malaria because the family couldn't afford more than one mosquito net. And the author argues that sweatshops are good because if there was a sweatshop in this woman's village, maybe she could have afforded more than one mosquito net. <sighs> Pretty amazing, since even the richy rich mathy math Silicon Valley tech set of the discreal AI fixated long termists and all of their eugenics ideas and their effective altruism, even that lot, even that crowd backs charity to provide people in the global south with mosquito nets to prevent malaria. <sighs> that said, tech hypers reportedly used woke washing arguments to defend tech products such as WorldCoin, which Paris Marx reports has been deployed in the global south, luring people to orbs with tokens and free t-shirts in order to collect biometric data from people and train the company's computer systems with it. Molly White described this on the Tech Won't Save Us podcast, describing how it's used to silence people who speak out against WorldCoin, accusing critics of 
quote, white American privilege and claiming that tech is helping people in developing countries. But White says, quote, but what we've actually seen play out is broadly that they are not helping people. You know that people who are engaging with these projects in those locations are suffering for it and often being exploded, unquote. And we just can't dismiss all of this as coincidence, that people are just confused and they come up with these bad faith argument because of weird worldviews. Even though that's clearly the case in some cases, uh, they do have weird worldviews sometimes. But it's been documented that it's often deliberate. There has been documented evidence of people hatching plans to deploy the wokewashing tactic on purpose in order to get caring, community-minded people to unmask and spread COVID. Patrick Fagan is a psychologist who once worked for Cambridge Analytica and was later linked to anti-vax groups in the UK. We found out this via messages revealed in the heart leaks in a chat exchange in 2021 between Tanya Kamenko and Patrick Fagan reported by Counter Disinformation Project in 2022. Tanya Kamenko asked, quote, So, if the pro-mask are particularly concerned about equality, then they might in theory be susceptible to a message on raising inequality as a direct result of NPI lockdown. Is that a reasonable assumption? And Patrick Fagan replied, quote, Yes, exactly. They are wearing the face mask to be fair to others and to reduce harm. If messaging shows that face masks are unfair and harmful, that would be very powerful, unquote. Fairness plays heavily in risk management and PR spin, according to Peter Sandman. In Peter Sandman's 1993 book, Responding to Community Outrage, Strategies for Effective Risk Communication, he describes what he calls the outrage factor. That outrage is key in people's perceptions of risk. We give more weight to risks that seem unfair, whereas if they seem like voluntary risks, we consider them more fair, natural, or acceptable. And so disinformation purveyors can manipulate people into feeling greater risks are okay because they are chosen, while lesser risks or things with no risk are perceived as unfair. It's clear Patrick Fagan is aware of some psychology here and was willing to use it to get people to go counter to public health and altruism. Patrick Fagan also had some weird ideas and wrong ideas, but there was no question that he was engaged in planning deliberate manipulation using wokewashing Darvo. And Tanya Kamenko was already equating NPIs, which stands for non-pharmaceutical interventions, as the same as lockdown which has expanded to include just wearing a mask. This is known as lockdown revisionism and is described in a paper from 2023 by Blake Murdoch and Timothy Caulfield as, quote, lockdown, as used in public discourse, has expanded to include any public health measure, even if it places little to no restriction on social mobility or interaction. For example, a working literature review and meta-analysis on the effects of lockdown on COVID-19 mortality misleadingly defines lockdowns as, quote, the imposition of at least one compulsory non-pharmaceutical intervention, unquote. Yes, they consider one simple public health measure as lockdown. This is what leads people to think we're under lockdown because they're asked to wear a mask at the doctor's office. This kind of disinformation leads nowhere good. Though most people 
who repeat misinformation may be doing so unwittingly. The sources of the disinformation are often doing it as a deliberate maneuver, and the motives can range from mere profiteering to state actors trying to disrupt on a geopolitical scale. And we all know who benefits from not stopping climate change. There's a 2012 paper I found on Accusation in a Mirror by Kenneth L. Marcus, published in the Loyola University Chicago Law Journal. And the paper is about the tactic of accusation in a mirror being used for the incitement of genocides. And I'm going to read from that because it's important. In the paper, it says, quote, The basic idea of accusation in a mirror is deceptively simple. Propagandists must impute to enemies exactly what they and their own party are planning to do. In other words, accusation in a mirror is a rhetorical practice in which one falsely accuses one's enemies of conducting, plotting, or desiring to commit precisely the same transgressions that one plans to commit against them. For example, if one plans to kill one's adversaries by drowning them in a particular river, then one should accuse one's adversaries of plotting precisely the same crime. As a result, one will accuse one's enemies of doing the same thing despite their plans. It is similar to false anticipatory tu quo quo. Before one's enemies accuse one truthfully, one accuses them falsely of the same misdeed. This may seem an unlikely means of inciting mass murder, since it would intuitively seem like not only to fail, but also backfire by publicly telegraphing its speaker's malicious intentions at times when the speakers may lack the wherewithal to carry out those schemes. The counterintuitiveness of this method is best appreciated when one grasps that its injunctions are to be taken literally. There is no hyperbole in the notes directive that the propagandists should impute to enemies exactly what they and their own party are planning to do. The point is not merely to impute inequities that are as bad as the misdeeds that propagandists' own party intends. Instead, accusation in a mirror is the more audacious idea of charging one's adversary with exactly the misdeeds that the propagandist party intends to commit. But why, out of all of the serious allegations that one might level at one's enemy, should one accuse the adversary of precisely the wrongs that one's own party intends to commit? After all, the risks are apparent. By revealing the propagandist's own intentions, accusation in a mirror deprives the propagandist party of the advantages of speed and surprise and gives the adversary an opportunity to anticipate and prepare. At the same time, this method provides independent observers and subsequent judicial tribunals with evidence of intent. Moreover, accusation in a mirror is not based on any evaluation of what misdeeds are most plausibly ascribed to the enemy, such as those that are based on traditional stereotypes, defamations, or actual culpability, since it relies instead on the plans of the propagandist's party. Despite its counterintuitive nature, accusation in a mirror has proven to be one of the central mechanisms by which the genocidaires publicly and directly incite genocide, in part because it turns out to be quite effective. Once accusation of mirror structure and functions are understood, its pervasive and efficacious presence can be discerned not only in mass murder, but also in a host of lesser persecutions. 
These qualities can make accusation in a mirror an indispensable tool for identifying and prosecuting incitement. The Genocide Convention criminalizes direct and public incitement to commit genocide, regardless of whether actual genocide occurs, unquote. Clearly, one of the main things to consider about disinformation is that it just doesn't have to make sense to work because it all relies on people being on autopilot and not thinking things through and not paying attention. We're all so busy. It was described in PBS series Hacking Your Mind. Most of our lives are spent on autopilot and not engaging in critical thinking. And all this seems to be connected to Bandura's theory of the mechanisms of moral disengagement. And those mechanisms include portraying wrongdoing as serving a higher social cause. Exonerative comparison, where wrongs are compared to even more heinous acts to minimize the harms. Displacement of responsibility by blaming other groups. And actually blaming the victim of one's action for causing the harm inflicted upon them. In 2022, I did a crowdsourcing of how these methods of moral disengagement have played out in the pandemic, and I posted it on my substack with the title Moral Sabotage and Community Caring Disengaged. I'd like it if we could re-engage morality. That would be nice, wouldn't it? We need to crowdsource ideas for that. I do recommend perusing the paper where I found that moral disengagement table. It's in the white volume, July 2012, National Security Challenges, Insights from Social, Neurobiological, and Complexity Sciences. I think a review of the authors and the people whose work is cited in that piece might prove very interesting to some people listening right now.